Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, May 5th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The White House hosts tech CEOs to discuss AI policies. U.S. students' history and civic scores reach a record low. A Human Rights Watch report claims China is monitoring the phones of Uyghurs. Senate Democrats launch a renewed effort to counter China. India and Brazil are deemed to be among the most dangerous nations for activists. An Israeli raid kills three Palestinians accused of a deadly settler attack. The New York City subway death of a homeless man is ruled a homicide. Four Proud Boys are charged with seditious conspiracy. The FDA approves the world's first RSV vaccine. And astronomers spot what appears to be a star swallowing its own planet. In our top story, the White House hosts CEOs to discuss AI policy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, CNBC, Verge, Voice of America, and Politico. U.S. President Biden and Vice President Harris met with the CEOs of major tech companies, including Google and Microsoft, on Thursday to discuss the potential risks of artificial intelligence and how governments can properly address them. Just before the meeting, the White House announced a number of plans to address problems associated with programs like ChatGBT and other AI systems. Lawmakers fearing that deep fake technology will proliferate misinformation seek to create policies that will regulate how federal agencies procure and use AI systems. The White House also announced it will invest $140 million from the National Science Foundation to create new research hubs to bring the total of active institutes to 25. As the administration looks to learn more about the ever-evolving technology, as the public's interest and the government's scrutiny of AI grows, Companies such as Google, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and OpenAI have agreed to allow their language models to be publicly analyzed during the upcoming DEF CON cybersecurity conference. A senior administration official told Reuters that the White House believes it must, quote, manage the risks to seize the benefits of AI. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman said, quote, it's good to get ahead of this, referring to timely AI regulation. However, the U.S. has far more lenient regulation compared to European laws regarding deep fakes and misinformation. Congress is also grappling with how to deal with AI as some members draft bills. The White House issued a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, a voluntary measures governing AI. But the only thing resembling potential AI regulation is a section of last year's Data Privacy Act that has yet to be reintroduced to Congress. All right. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have some narrative spins, starting with Narrative A from Carnegie Mellon University. Both Congress and the White House have made a point not to create a blanket regulation covering AI at large and to be cautious in its approach to this emerging technology. Some critics may say the White House has not acted strongly enough as concerns surrounding AI grow, but it's taking a prudent approach to invest in research and craft an individualized approach for each potential issue. A decentralized approach to regulating AI is the most effective way to handle this complex issue. Narrative B comes from American Progress. The White House must act swiftly and strongly as it looks to establish safeguards against the potential dangers of AI. Harris's meeting with CEOs of leading AI companies is a nice step, 
But the Biden administration's voluntary blueprint last year is not enough to prevent an explosion of bias and misinformation brought by AI. President Biden must issue an executive order to further enhance regulation efforts. Just before this podcast, Scott, I was trolling the net and I saw I saw a deep fake of you. You should see it, man. It's amazing. You look just like, what was his name? Arnold Schwarzenegger. And you sound like Pee Wee Herman. So they just don't have it correct yet. <laughs> yeah, they got to dial in a little bit. I mean, they got the body right. A report claims that U.S. students' history and civics aptitude hits a record low. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, New York Times, Washington Post, The Hill, and the Associated Press. Data released Wednesday by the National Assessment of Education Progress, or NAEP, shows that in 2022, only 13% of 8th grade students in the U.S. scored proficient or above in history, while only 22% were proficient or above in civics. This represents a five-point drop from scores in 2018 for history and a two-point drop for scores in civics, the lowest scores since the NAEP began testing for civics in 1998. U.S. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona linked the decline to the profound impact of school closures during the pandemic, also objecting to funding cuts or banning history books and censoring educators. NAEP board member Martin West, however, cautioned that the data doesn't provide reasons for the decline. The NAEP used a sample of 8,000 eighth graders to track performance across subjects nationwide. Declines in scores began in 2014, and contributing factors identified include a decrease in instructional time, poorer state-level standards, and remote learning during the pandemic. Some cite changing trends in teaching as being partly responsible for the scores, such as less emphasis on memorization and a general decrease in reading comprehension. The No Child Left Behind Act also mandates state testing for reading, math, and science, but not for social studies. This follows NAEP's report last year that showed reading and math scores for 8th graders dropped by 3 and 8 points respectively from 2019 to 2022, with reading falling to 1992 levels, and not a single state seeing an increase in average test scores. Scott, thank you for the facts. Our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from The Guardian. Republican-led states are defunding education to advance their so-called school choice agenda and censor material they find distasteful. As censorship of topics relating to race and LGBTQ plus issues has accelerated under the guise of parents' rights, it's no surprise that understanding of history and civics has become a casualty as students become pawns in a culture war. Students can recover from the pandemic-induced drop in learning, but not from a methodical dismantling of America's public education system. And we have a Republican narrative from the Wall Street Journal. Leftists and their bureaucratic education system have nobody to blame but themselves, as their draconian COVID policies educationally stunted the next generation of Americans. Beholden to teachers' unions, Democrat-run states that kept their students away from the classroom longer suffered more than states that kept their schools open. Charter and religious schools outperformed public schools during the pandemic, showing a course correction on education policy toward choice and freedom is long overdue. Forbes is giving us a cynical narrative for this story. The NAEP results are routinely trotted out to advance political agendas by people with little understanding of what they actually mean. On state and local levels, proficient means at grade level. 
whereas the NAEP uses proficient to indicate an advanced understanding of the material. There is also evidence that the NAEP standards are too high to be an accurate measure of competency, as half of the students at a, quote, basic level end up receiving a bachelor's degree. Any decline is bad news, but we ought to be skeptical of any apocalyptic messaging based on these numbers. A lot of my experience in school, I, I mean, I went to school in the 90s and, you know, middle school and whatnot, and it was a lot of teaching the tests. You know, we, we have to get a certain score right. on this aptitude test, and we're going to do that. And like they mentioned, it's hard to teach a, a standardized test of history. It was all like math and things, you know, reading comprehension. Yeah. yeah. They weren't, they weren't, te- they were teaching the test, man. And I don't blame them. That I don't blame the teachers. That's what they were told to do. We have yeah. to get these test scores up. That's the mandate. Okay. Right. That's right. Where we go. I know. And actually, I think that the pandemic stuff is hiding a bunch of other deficiencies. Like you can blame the pandemic right now. I think that has less to do with it than people would ideally want you to think. Yeah. But it's it's gonna take oh, it's well, gonna it's take a while for everything. World. It is, yeah. It'll take a while for everything to come out in the wash, that's for sure. In our next story, a Humans Rights Watch report claims that China is monitoring the phones of Uyghurs. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Humans Rights Watch, Al Jazeera, News and Gossip, and Wirefan. According to a Humans Rights Watch, or HRW report published on Thursday, Chinese authorities monitor the phones of ethnic minority Uyghurs with a list of 50,000 known multimedia files used to flag violent extremism. Possession of the Quran is reportedly enough to trigger a police interrogation. The list includes alleged violent and terrorist content from militant groups like the Islamic State, but also allegedly includes material from organizations that promote the identity or self-determination of the mostly Muslim Uyghurs from the far west Xinjiang region. According to HRW, these organizations include the separatist East Turkestan Independence Movement, the World Uyghur Conference Exile Group, and the U.S. government-funded news outlet Radio Free Asia. Other banned material allegedly includes information about the 1989 Tiananmen Square Massacre, readings from the Quran, and Islamic songs. HRW's analysis found that among 1,000 files flagged by police from 11.2 million searches of more than 1 million phones between 2017 and 2018, 57% of the content deemed problematic was ordinary religious material, 9% showed violence, and 4% called for violence. A leaked list of 2,000 detainees at a re-education facility in Aksu Prefecture in 2018 also reportedly showed that 10% were detained for downloading alleged violent and terrorist multimedia or having a connection to someone who downloaded it. Beijing, which launched its Strike Hard campaign against violent terrorism in 2014, denies committing human rights abuses in Xinjiang and defends its re-education centers as important tools to, quote, combat violent extremism and alleviate poverty. The anti-China narrative on this spin comes from Human Rights Watch. The Chinese government has surveilled and detained Uyghurs simply due to their religion. This has nothing to do with national security or fighting terrorism and everything to do with clamping down on minorities who wish to be free from the CCP regime. Countries concerned by these findings should identify the technology companies involved in this illegal surveillance and take appropriate action against them. Global Times brings us a pro-China narrative. 
Nations with an anti-China agenda have consistently concocted misinformation about what's really happening in Xinjiang. The PRC's policies aren't about human rights or religion. They're about combating violent terrorism and radicalization. As Washington intensifies its aggressive stance, the government-funded human rights organizations are fabricating stories about Uyghur oppression to build anti-China sentiment around the world. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 20% chance there will be a U.S.-China war by the year 2035. Senate Democrats launch a renewed effort to counter China. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC, Roll Call, The Hill, South China Morning Post, The Associated Press, and Bloomberg. Senate Democrats on Wednesday launched a renewed effort to develop new bipartisan legislation to bolster U.S. competitiveness with China, building on the strong foundations set last year by the Chips and Science Act. The outlined goals would limit the high-tech and investment flow to China, promote investment in U.S. companies, foster cooperation with allies, exemplified by providing a U.S.-led alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative, and deter China from conflict with Taiwan. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, has argued that time is running out amid Beijing's attempts to surpass the U.S., further stating that Republicans, namely Senators Tom Young, Republican of Indiana, and John Corrin, Republican of Texas, have welcomed the move. Republican support is crucial for approval of the legislation, which Schumer hopes will be assembled within the next several months, as the GOP holds the majority in the House of Representatives. The passage of the package could prove difficult, however, as GOP lawmakers have placed more emphasis on spending cuts than on enacting new programs since taking the majority in the House. Senator John Thune, Republican of South Dakota, has expressed his disbelief that legislation with a big price tag has any hope of advancing in a divided Congress. Last year, House Republicans, led by now Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, opposed the $52 billion measure of grants and incentives to domestic semiconductor manufacturing as a part of a China competition bill, which was approved when the House was under Democratic control. Those are the facts and our first spin as a pro-establishment narrative coming from Christian Science Monitor. The recognition of the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, to the very existence of the U.S. and its most fundamental values has cut across the U.S. political divide, reversing decades of wishful thinking that China would eventually be liberalized if it were integrated into the global order. Americans do not want a Cold War 2.0, but they must protect themselves and the future of the free world. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the Global Times. Though Washington repeatedly claims not to be seeking conflict with China, its actions say otherwise. Polarized policies in the U.S. have made it difficult for the two major political parties to reach bipartisan compromise in domestic issues. Instead of forcing them to demonstrate their ability to cooperate in international matters, such as through opposition to Beijing, thus creating a situation that restricts de-escalation efforts. And the Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 20% chance that there will be a U.S.-China war before the year 2035. Didn't we already just have that one? Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's big news. There's no, yeah, no question about it. That's, 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 uh, but they're yeah. trying to drive that one home, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Don't, okay. What if it went up to 21% since we last read the other one and it popped up <laughs> <Yeah>. one? 
don't know. According to a special report, India and Brazil are among the most dangerous places for activists. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Business Post, The News International, and Mint. According to a report released on Wednesday, India, Brazil, Mexico, and Cambodia are among the most dangerous places on the globe for human rights defenders. As per the report, published by the UK-based Business and Human Rights Resource Center, Brazil topped the list with 63 attacks recorded against activists in 2022, followed by India with 54 and Mexico with 44 attacks in the same year. Meanwhile, Cambodia had 40 recorded attacks, followed by the Philippines with 32 and Honduras with 31 attacks. Belarus, Peru, Colombia, and Uganda were the next most dangerous countries, with between 17 and 28 recorded attacks. The research found that 75% of the more than 550 recorded attacks worldwide were related to activists advocating for land, climate, or environmental rights, and that one-fifth of the attacks targeted indigenous activists. The report added that although it was difficult to identify the perpetrators of the attacks, 235 incidents, or about 43% of the cases, were linked to multinational companies or their subsidiaries. The Wire of India brings us Narrative A. This scale of attacks against activists shows that governments worldwide are failing to protect their country's human rights. Multinational corporations should not be threatening the health and safety of political activists who have a thorough knowledge of the interworkings of local contexts, human rights, and environmental risks. Instead, they should partner with these activists and utilize their expertise for good. France 24 gives us Narrative B. Although nothing justifies unprovoked attacks, global activists should not be generically portrayed as a force for good, especially when many of them face accusations of spreading dangerous misinformation about the establishment. Unfortunately, they usually rely on tactics that are hard to police without limiting free speech or taking administrative action, as they increasingly become the most dangerous of misinformation stoking opposition to critical developmental projects. It is imperative to dispel lies and protect stability in countries across the world. And we have another nerd narrative. There's a 50% chance that 1.1 billion people will be living in liberal democracies in the world in 2025. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. An Israeli raid kills three Palestinians accused of a deadly settler attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, The Guardian, and the Associated Press. During a raid into the northern West Bank city of Nablus, Israeli forces on Thursday killed three Palestinian fighters, two of which Israel said shot dead a British-Israeli settler in the West Bank and her two daughters in April. Lucy D. was killed last month alongside her two daughters when a car they were traveling in was shot at in the West Bank in April. The sisters died immediately from their injuries, while their mother succumbed to wounds in the hospital several days later. They lived in the Israeli settlement of Afrat. Palestinian militant group Hamas confirmed that the men killed were members of its armed wing and that the two suspects carried out the April attack. Witnesses said Israeli undercover units surrounded a house in the old city, exchanging fire with the three men, leaving the structure badly damaged by explosions and bullet holes. Meanwhile, in the village of Huwara, outside Nablus, a Palestinian woman stabbed an Israeli soldier and was then shot by him and a second soldier 
according to the Israeli military. This incident was unrelated to the shootout in Nablus's Old City. The raid comes the same week as the death of Palestinian prisoner Qatar Adnan from a hunger strike while in Israeli detention, which sparked an exchange of rocket fire and airstrikes between Gazan militants and the Israeli military. Adnan, a prominent figure among Palestinians, was affiliated with Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The situation in the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel has worsened in the last year due to an increase in Israeli raids in the West Bank, following a spree of Palestinian attacks in Israel. Israeli raids have primarily focused on the northern West Bank, and some 250 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli fire since the raids were launched, while 50 Israelis have been killed in Palestinian attacks. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin is a pro-Palestine narrative coming from Middle East Eye. Israel's actions in the West Bank continue to push Palestinians into a corner as it assassinates members of the Palestinian resistance factions. It is ultimately Israel that is to blame for the increase in violence throughout the Holy Land. Emboldened by international silence after killing more Palestinians last year than in any other calendar year since the Second Intifada, the occupation is becoming even more violent. And the pro-Israel spin comes from the Jerusalem Post. Those killed in Thursday's raid were terrorists who brutally murdered an innocent woman and her two daughters. Israel will not allow terrorists to have a safe haven anywhere in the West Bank, and every Palestinian attack will either be countered or responded to with lethal force. Lucy D's family will have at least some resolution, knowing that the killers have been neutralized. A recent New York City subway death has been ruled a homicide. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, New York Times, BBC News, Washington Post, and CNN. On Wednesday, New York City's medical examiner announced that the death of Jordan Neely, a man who had been shouting at people on a subway train Monday, was a homicide. Neely died from compression of his neck after a fellow rider put him in a lengthy chokehold. A spokesperson for the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, said police and prosecutors are investigating the incident which happened on an F train in Manhattan. A video appeared to show Neely's head and neck being held for several minutes until the homeless man's body went limp. The unidentified 24-year-old U.S. Marine who restrained Neely was questioned and released by police. Although the examiner ruled Neely's death a homicide, investigators will determine if homicide charges should be pursued. Police said Neely, who was reportedly known as a Michael Jackson impersonator who often busked on the subway, was acting in a hostile and erratic manner before the incident. This comes more than a year after the New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced a plan to reduce crime and address homelessness in the subway system, including adding more people to deal with behavioral health. Our left narrative spin comes from MSNBC. Tragedies like this are a result of policies that dehumanize homeless people across the country, creating an environment where people feel entitled to not only mistreat them, but to use a potentially lethal hold on someone suffering an obvious mental crisis. Our society needs more compassionate policies to avoid future incidents like this. Daily Wire gives us a right narrative. This is a tragic result of liberal cities' soft-on-crime policies that allow crime to run rampant, forcing average citizens to intervene. If cities were tougher on crime and police forces were better supported, citizens would be protected, and these types of incidents could be avoided. 
And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 2% chance that a large American city will fully abolish its police department before the year 2035. Four Proud Boys are charged with seditious conspiracy. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Washington Examiner, CNN, The Wall Street Journal, Baltimore Sun, Breitbart, and Forbes. Proud Boys members, including leader Enrique Tario, as well as Ethan Nordine, Joseph Biggs, and Zachary Reel, have been convicted of seditious conspiracy for their involvement in the January 6, 2021 U.S. Capitol riots. Alongside the four convicted who also faced charges of obstructing the Electoral College vote and tampering with evidence, the jury hasn't come to a decision on a fifth member, Dominic Pizzola. After the three-month trial and more than a week of deliberations, however, Pizzola was convicted of obstructing a proceeding of Congress and the destruction of government property. The jury is still deliberating on his seditious conspiracy charge. Of the five defendants, all but Terrio entered the Capitol on January 6th due to his prior arrest on January 4th. Prosecutors said he helped direct them from afar after he was ordered by a judge to stay out of Washington following his arrest for burning a Black Lives Matter banner at a church. The conviction comes after members of another right-wing group, the Oath Keepers, were found guilty of the same crime last year, including its leader, Stuart Rhodes. Terrio's indictment claims he met with Rhodes in a Washington parking garage on January 5th. Before the convictions of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers members, which carry a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison, only 12 Americans had ever been convicted of treason or seditious conspiracy throughout U.S. history. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Uh, the first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from Washington Post. Donald Trump called on his supporters to, quote, stand by after losing the election, and the Proud Boys took him at his word. Under the leadership and persuasion of the former president, these individuals violently broke into the U.S. Capitol, thinking they would stop Joe Biden from becoming president, which is a blatant violation of the law and arguably treasonous. This case was cut and dry and the jury made the right decision. And the pro-Trump narrative comes from the Daily Caller. These charges were based on the loosest definition of seditious conspiracy, with federal prosecutors claiming that an intricate plan isn't required to be a conspiracy. The defense was also barred from calling witnesses regarding alleged federal informants among the Proud Boys on January 6th. This calls into question whether the jury received all the facts necessary to convict American citizens of such a serious crime. New York Times brings us an establishment critical narrative. Both critics on the right and the left have raised deep concerns about the role of FBI informants in the orbit of the Proud Boys, including Terrio's alleged past as a prolific informant himself. We must be cautious of conspiracy theories from both sides, but there's good cause for concern that the agency's informants got entangled in this group in a messy fashion. Americans have every right to question the FBI as an institution and if it protected democracy the best it could have on January 6th. Eric, it says these two guys met up in a parking garage for their secret meeting. Where would you have your secret meeting? Where would you go? Oh, Area 51, of course. Oh, good. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Yeah, I should have thought of that. Well, yeah, I'll see you there. Yeah, okay. Sounds good. In medical news, the FDA approves the world's first RSV vaccine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, GSK, USA Today, New York Post, CNBC, and the CDC. 
On Wednesday, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, approved RxV, the world's first respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, vaccine for adults 60 or older. The approval of RxV, approved by GlaxoSmithKline, is based on the FDA's analysis of data from a Phase three clinical trial in which the vaccine's single-dose shot re reduced the risk of lower respiratory tract disease caused by RSV by nearly 83%. Though the efficacy data on RxV is reported sufficient for approval, the FDA has acknowledged potential safety issues over Julian-Barr syndrome, a rare neurological disorder that can result from the shot. Before the vaccine can be rolled out to the public, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention must vote in favor to recommend its release. The advisory committee is scheduled to convene in June. GSK's vaccine is one of several RSV vaccines under review by the FDA, including Pfizer's RSV Pre-F. The FDA has asked Pfizer to conduct a safety study on the risk of Julian-Barr syndrome if its vaccine is approved. According to the CDC, RSV leads to approximately 60,000 to 160,000 hospitalizations and 6,000 to 10,000 deaths among adults 65 and older each year. Among children younger than five, the CDC reports that it causes an estimated 58,000 to 80,000 hospitalizations and 100 to 300 deaths per annum. Nature.com brings us Narrative A. The approval of the world's first RSV vaccine is a tremendous opportunity to help address a critical public health need. The development of RxV is a breakthrough that will save many lives by preventing millions from contracting a highly contagious, life-threatening disease. Washington Post brings us Narrative B. It is essential to adequately assess this shot's efficacy and potential association with Julian Barr before releasing it for public use. Moreover, additional research is needed to determine if it can be given seasonally, like flu shots, and how effective it will be for RSV patients undergoing specific treatments, such as chemotherapy or organ transplants. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that a universal flu vaccine will be available by May of 2030, according to the Metaculus prediction community. I was going to ask you, how is your clinical study going for the uh, extra toes on your right foot? Uh, well, we're in uh, we're in approval. We're waiting, you know, because we want to have it in Europe and the United States. It's two different sets of uh, of regulations. It's a it's a huge headache. Our final story: Astronomers spot a star potentially swallowing its own planet. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Nature, Science Daily, Mashable India, Ars Technica, The Daily Beast, and PBS NewsHour. In a study published in Nature on Wednesday, a multi-university team of scientists revealed that they may have caught a star swallowing a planet in its orbit, a phenomenon that has not been directly observed before. The cosmic feast reportedly occurred in our own Milky Way galaxy, roughly 12,000 light-years away, in the eagle-like constellation Aquila. Scientists believe the planet was a gas giant the size of Jupiter, which spiraled towards a dying star 1,000 times its size before being pulled into the star's core. Just after the 10-billion-year-old star engulfed its nearby planet, the scientists spotted an outburst of bright light, making the sun-like star more than 100 times brighter over just 10 days before fading back to its normal state. MIT astrophysicist Kashale Day, lead author of the study, accidentally discovered the planetary demise in May 2020 while reviewing scans of the sky, 
It reportedly took additional observations and data crunching to deduce the bright outburst was indeed a stellar merger. Scientists warn that a similar fate will befall the Earth when the sun is expected to expand rapidly near the end of its life. If it's any consolation, this will happen in about 5 billion years, said study co-author Harvard astrophysicist Morgan McLeod. Scott, thank you for the facts of that interesting story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from CNN. While astronomers have previously seen planets just before and after being engulfed by a star, this is the first time the act of consuming an entire planet has been observed. This discovery is exciting as it represents a missing link in astrophysics and can help better understand the, the full life cycle of stars. And Narrative B comes from Daily Mail. Astronomers speculate the combination of a white-hot flash followed by a colder, longer-lasting signal could only have been produced by a star engulfing a nearby planet. However, more data needs to be collected to reach a consistent and scientifically agreed-upon conclusion. This data is a clue about how stars behave, but not the final verdict yet. And we have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast. It says there's an 80% chance that the universe will end. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. <laughs> that almost, Jeez. That almost, that almost <laughs> sounded like a Norm MacDonald news headline. <laughs> yeah, it did. Wow. And who will end it? You guessed it. Frank Stallone. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, May 5th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.